quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the show. Within the hour, President Biden expected to give details of an operation in Syria overnight in which U.S. forces killed the leader of ISIS. CNN has received the first videos of the operation, and these are the first images showing the aftermath of the mission. The Pentagon has provided very little detail except to say the operation was successful. John Howard joins us now. John, good to have you with us. What more do we know about this operation ahead of the expected speech by President Biden, of course, this hour? Oh, I don't think we have John there. We will go and move on and hopefully get back to him. And I'll reiterate, we expect a statement from the president in around 25 minutes. We will take you to that when it happens too. But for now, we'll move on. Russia responds. The Kremlin has said it's, quote, worried by news that the U.S. is deploying additional troops to Eastern Europe to accuse the United States of further stirring tensions in Europe. Nick Robertson is in Moscow for us. Nick, of course, we're waiting to hear once again from President Putin today. But ahead of that, interesting what we got from the White House yesterday, the decision to drop the word imminent when discussing a potential attack from Russia on Ukraine. And obviously the Ukrainians too have welcomed what they're seeing as a, a de-escalation in some of the emotions and the rhetoric surrounding the issue. Yeah, it's what the Ukrainians have been calling for, and they're calling this mm. a good diplomatic step. Uh, and this is certainly sort of in keeping with how they want to set the narrative of what's happening, that there is a buildup beyond their borders, but they don't sense that it is absolutely imminent. We heard from uh, the, uh, their officials today talking about the buildup that they see in uh, Crimea at the moment, you know, where the latest satellite imagery showed additional tents ar around some of the uh, uh, Russian military hardware. But, you know, they're, they're their view is there is not an imminent strike force that's about to be launched. So, so this sort of aids the diplomacy around the situation, if I will. But Russia, you know, pointing at the United States, saying that the deployment of uh, U.S. troops to, to, you know, to Romania, to uh, Germany, to Poland, these additional U.S. Uh, forces that are coming into the region, Russia saying everyone can see this is this is close to our border, that this is a concern. Everyone un understands and can see that it would be a security concern for us. So, so Russia's position on this is one that what the United States is doing to support uh, NATO allies as, as a defensive posture uh, is, is, in Russia's eyes, escalating tensions uh, and making the situation in Ukraine more unstable. I mean, the, Russia will portray this as further aggression. I'm sure that's the message that uh, Vladimir Putin will give to Emmanuel Macron when, when they talk later today, too. To others, this might be seen as a deterrent effect if the Russians were indeed intending to do something in the coming days or weeks. Nick, on the surface, we get rhetoric. What do you think is going on behind the scenes here? Do you think that, that NATO, the United States and the Europeans 
believe that perhaps this is having some kind of uh, second guess effect? Uh, you know, it's still to a degree posturing uh, on the Russian side, and it's still the United States meeting that posturing with uh, a deterrence message on their side. But on the diplomatic track, uh, you have, uh, you know, the, the, the Russian president just two days ago saying that he was looking forward to a face-to-face -face meeting with President Emmanuel Macron, who last night, Emmanuel Macron had a late-night phone call with President Biden. The talk there was essentially about, you know, coordinating diplomacy and the French president saying that he was reaching out to more European uh, nations and leaders uh, in, in Europe at the moment. And he's speaking with the, he's been speaking with the uh, Polish, uh, president uh, during today and expected to speak later today with uh, with uh, President Putin. And this will be their third call in less than seven days. So it seems as if there is a sort of a diplomatic track opening up here. But it doesn't seem at the moment that there can really be a meeting of the minds because the Russian position is so clear that they haven't got their demands from NATO met. But there is, you know, President Putin is looking at the French president and also the German uh, chancellor who's announced that he'll be visiting uh, Moscow in a little less than two weeks time, looking at both of them to put pressure on Ukraine to get the compromises from Ukraine about uh, about that breakaway uh, separatist region in the east of the, the Donbass region. So he's looking at the, perhaps that diplomatic tract, uh, you know, um, for, you know, for those talks around what happens in the Donbass region, the ceasefire there, the, the, the north Normandy track, uh, trying to implement the Minsk Agreement of 2015. So there are a lot of moving pieces in, in, in here, but yes, a little more traction potentially on, on the diplomatic side. Yes, we hope. Nick Robertson, great to have you with us. Thank you for your insights as always. Okay, returning to our breaking news story, the death of the leader of ISIS in a U.S. military operation. President Biden set to speak later this hour. John Harwood, I believe, is back with us and he can now hear me. John, uh, hopefully I've got you there. What more can you tell us about this operation? Well, the uh, United States uh, conducted this operation last night. There were civilian deaths, but the United States uh, believes and, and is uh, President Biden's going to assert that they were the result of um, action by al-Qureshi, uh, the target of the raid, that he uh, exploded a suicide bomb that killed himself and killed members of his family. Uh, but it's, uh, uh, by the account of the United States, a, a successful uh, mission uh, that uh, did not result in American casualties. President Biden, in his statement, praised the bravery of those special forces who carried it out. Uh, and you can expect him this morning to uh, uh, talk about some of the details of the raid and, and uh, tout the success of taking the leader of ISIS off the battlefield. I mean, the United States in the past has uh, used drones to try and kill top al-Qaeda operatives in Idlib, for example. The fact that there were special forces on the ground here, John, I think points to their perceived importance of who this individual was and the threat, I think, that he represented. And also the difficulty of um, uh, targeting a raid precisely enough uh, to go after the leader of ISIS without um, collateral damage to uh, civilians. Now, that occurred anyway, but the uh, United States is uh, uh, going to argue that uh, this is the result of uh, action that al-Qureshi took, not action of those special forces. And we'll get more details in the next 20 minutes or so. John, great to have you with us. Thank you. And of course, we'll bring you that statement by the president 
when it happens. For now, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. New Zealand is about to end nearly two years of tough COVID-19 border rules. On Thursday, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern outlined a five-step plan that will allow fully vaccinated citizens to travel from Australia later this month. By July, certain people from Australia, the UK, the US and parts of Europe will be allowed into the country. Sweden says it will scrap most of its COVID restrictions next week as it reports milder infections from the Omicron variant. From Wednesday, authorities will no longer limit the size of gatherings, require proof of vaccination or enforce curfews at bars and restaurants. It means Scandinavia will then be mostly free of restrictions after Denmark and Norway announced similar moves earlier this week. Now, so to come here on First Move, farmers' pandemic prediction, Roche expects demand for COVID tests and treatments to slow. We have an interview with the CEO. And Meta Meltdown, Facebook's owners' efforts to create virtual worlds face a healthy dose of reality. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where we are waiting to hear from... President Biden, of course, in the next 20 minutes or so. We're also waiting to hear from President Putin at some point this morning, too. And then he's heading to Beijing to meet Chinese President Xi Jinping ahead of the Olympics opening ceremony tomorrow. Putin has released a letter to the Chinese public saying efforts by some countries to politicize sport are, quote, fundamentally wrong and contrary to the very spirit and principles of the Olympic Charter. Selena Wang joins us now from Beijing. Selena, it's going to be a who's who. Who attends the opening ceremony and who doesn't, of course? And I'm not just talking world leaders like President Putin. I'm also talking about the Olympic athletes themselves. Well, Julia, there will be some notable absentees at these games. There are athletes represented from 91 nations, but just 24 foreign dignitaries. And of those 24 dignitaries, the 19 of the places that they're from, well, they're considered either not free or partly free by U.S. think tank House Freedom House. And this is sending a strong message to the world at a time when you have the U.S. and other democratic nations like the U.K., Canada and Australia staging a diplomatic boycott against these games as a statement against allegations of genocide in China's Xinjiang region, allegations that Beijing has strongly denied. So in the stands on the opening ceremony, you will see Putin, Xi Jinping, you will see MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, autocratic leaders from places like Turkmenistan and Tajikistan. And this is a far cry, Julia, from the images we saw from the 2008 Summer Olympics when you had then-President George W. Bush sitting shoulder to shoulder with Chinese officials. This time, the image to remember will be Putin and Xi. That is symbolic of the closing, closening ties between those two leaders that have grown ever closer amid these worsening relationship with the West. So as you say, they're going to be having these bilateral talks and they'll be having a one-on-one lunch, attending that opening ceremony together. This at a time when Xi Jinping has called Putin a good friend and it will be his first face-to-face meeting since the pandemic started and his 38th meeting with Putin since he became leader. Julia. Yes, some momentous games for many reasons. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. Okay, on a quick look at what we're seeing in terms of stock market action and Meta's flop, Wall Street's kaplop. Take a look at that. U.S. futures are set for a lower open, driven by weak results from Facebook's parent company, Meta. The Nasdaq set to fall near 3% after four days of strong gains. Call it a case of Zuckerberg zapped. 
Meta set to fall more than 23% in early trade. Take a look at that. That's having a knock-on effect on other FANG favourites, including the likes of Amazon, which reports results after the closing bell, and Alphabet, which closed down more than oh, closed more than 7% higher Wednesday after reporting strong earnings in the session yesterday. Of course, Christine Romans joins me now. Reeling, I think, from these results, reeling or reels, is uh, their hope for the future, the TikTok competitor. Um, I think we can call it a meta meltdown, though, when you see, what, $200 billion? Is that right? Yeah. Wiped off the value pre-market. Um, the first stagnation of user growth in their history, Christine. Yeah, I mean, look, and that that I think is 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 a real moment to mark. But there are other pieces mm. of this story that sort of add to that. If it were just that, it'd be one thing. But it is a big miss by Meta. And really, since Facebook became Meta, what in mid October, it's really struggled to find its footing or gain some traction here. User growth is stalled or shrinking. That is one headline. Apple's new privacy options make it harder uh, to target ad campaigns. That's another headline. Com- Competition from TikTok is so much bigger and just swamps what it's trying to do with Reels. That's another headline. So one after the other. You've also got this big, big investment into virtual reality and artificial intelligence and all of these things that could pay off way out in the future. But it's almost as if Mark Zuckerberg is in the metaverse right now. And these these earnings show you that investors are still in the real world and looking at these numbers and seeing the, the return on that investment way far off, Julia. Yeah, and it's quite fascinating to me as well. And we had a guest on yesterday talking about the overhype in, in meta and said actually short meta versus go long physical things because we still need those. Um, but it's also about building communities. And I just wonder, given to your point, all the challenges they're facing, the regulatory pressure, the, the criticism that they've come under, they're pumping lots of money, even down to changing the name of the company itself into something that perhaps community trust is important. And... Um, I'm not sure Facebook has it, despite the fact that we're still talking about a company with 2.9 billion users, of course. Yeah, and maybe it's the trajectory of that that community. Yeah. The community is there. This big salary, is it still growing? How is it growing and how are they profiting uh, from it? There are these little these little inklings there that there's a challenge for the first time in a very long time for, for Facebook. You know, it tried to change the name to Meta to talk about the future, right? And maybe maybe many many critics thought try to take the taint of the regulatory, uh, the re- regulatory scrutiny off of the company. But since it changed its name, the stock has gone nowhere and sideways, losing $200 billion in market cap yesterday. Mark Zuckerberg's personal wealth taken a hit yesterday as well. So I just say it's a very, a very very bad, bad day for Mark Zuckerberg and Meta yesterday. We'll see how it, we'll see if it pops a little today or, or yeah. And we're, or can, we're seeing the we're seeing the separation of tech stocks as well. And to yeah. your exact point, I think we often say, "Oh, they're price of the future," but I think don't think I can say it better than you did. When the future looks so unclear and the investment in certain things is so unclear, um, investors are in the, within their rights to go. Um, we don't get it. We're a bit yeah. confused here. Yeah. <laughs> Christine Romans, thank you for that. And a sour note for Spotify, too. Its subscription growth is slowing amid the ongoing Joe Rogan ruckus. The service ended 2021 with 180 million paid subscribers, but its stock down nearly 13% pre-market following weak guidance. Certainly not music to investors' ears. CNN's Paula Monica joins us now on this story. Actually, the most interesting thing for me from the, the investor call on this was that Joe Rogan's podcast is 
the most popular podcast in 90 different countries. I think we mentioned the United States and the UK earlier this week. And it actually, for me, ties to the importance of advertising spend for this company. But I think for most people, the big question here was content, managing content with creativity. Exactly. And I think what we have here, Julia, is that CEO Daniel Ek of Spotify He didn't necessarily go out on the conference call and explicitly say that, hey, we care more about podcasters than musicians, but he sort of hinted at it. He talked about how Spotify is much more than a music company, that it really is now something that caters to creators. And that is sort of a loose, amorphous term that obviously includes podcasters like Joe Rogan. So I think what we have right now is that Spotify seems to be digging in its heels and it's supporting the likes of Joe Rogan, even if it means that Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and perhaps others are going to take their music away from Spotify and bring it just to Apple Music instead. And that brings challenges of its own when you have opinion givers and makers publishing material, providing material on your platform. And the CEO said that we're trying to balance creative expression with the safety of our users. It goes to the point, though, Paul, and it comes back to the ability to make money in the end. If it was always about music, it was about subscriptions. And I think what we've ignored about this is the fact that when you have these podcasts that are doing so well around the world, you can actually get paid advertising. And that's now 15% of their revenues. That's something we shouldn't ignore. The problem is, and investors were more focused, I think, here on subscriptions. And on that, the guidance was disappointing. Yeah, I think that Wall Street is still hyper-focused on those subscriber numbers. And they're like that with all social media companies. It's one of the reasons, I think, why Meta Facebook is obviously having some uh, struggles as well. And Spotify, much like Meta, is in this tough spot, so to speak, that they don't necessarily want to be policing content and their creators. But you have people that are going to scrutinize everything Joe Rogan has to say. And if more artists take their music off of Spotify, that could hurt subscriber growth going forward. Now, to be fair, CEO Daniel X said during the conference call that it's way too soon to say if their guidance, which you know disappointed Wall Street, is a reflection of people being nervous about musicians leaving the platform or any sort of dissatisfaction with uh, Joe Rogan. But this is a story that's going to continue to unfold. And you know, as of right now, it looks like Apple Music could be the winner if Spotify continues to lose some high-profile artists. Mm. The parallels, there are many parallels, actually, between this story and the Facebook story. And and the main one here is, remember, delete Facebook. And actually, they ended up with more users, not less. I wonder whether people just trying to work out who Joe Rogan is and what's the big issue here actually means more subscribers, not less. Spotify is losing subscribers. It's just that the growth isn't as strong as what Wall Street expected. Yeah, we'll see what the Joe Rogan effect is. <laughs> Paula Monica, thank you for that. In Europe, shares of Swiss pharma giant Roche are lower after its yearly results. The drug maker expects sales growth to slow as demand for COVID drugs and tests weakens. Bad news for the stock, though. Great news for humanity. It's essentially a prediction that the pandemic will ease by April. I asked Roche's CEO how confident we can be that the end is in sight. 
there is, of course, a lot of uncertainty to say that up front. Uh, it's very difficult to predict how the virus will evolve. Um, but our base assumption is uh, that uh, the pandemic will slow down in the second uh, quarter of this year. And as a result, indeed, we also predict that uh, COVID sales uh, will be uh, smaller than they were last year. Now, having said that, uh, we see a very good growth uh, actually in the high single digits of our underlying business driven by our new medicines and diagnostics. Yeah, and we should talk about that too. I mean, what we've seen in the past year is the results helped by sales of your drugs to fight haemophilia, for cancer immunotherapy drugs as well. And actually, it's on the latter point I wanted to ask, has the flow of people going and getting diagnosed for illnesses normalized now? Because clearly during the pandemic, again, we saw a significant drop off and it created great concerns over late stage diagnostics in, in cancers in particular. By and large, uh, it has normalized now. Uh, there was really a very negative impact back in 2020. But in the meantime, healthcare systems, uh, hospitals have learned to deal with, with patient flows. Uh, so uh, it has, it has uh, recovered. It's probably not yet fully back at, at, at normal uh, levels. Uh, but by and large, it has recovered also in fields like uh, oncology. You know, when I think of Roche, I do think of your oncology prowess and, and targeted drug therapy in particular. Even if you weren't a leader here, what do you think the breakthroughs that we've seen in mRNA technology will mean in the future for, for cancer treatments, for treatments of things like HIV and AIDS? Actually, we are working on um, RNA-based uh, treatments, uh, medicines, also cancer vaccines. Uh, it's still early. Um, cancer is uh, an extremely uh, complex disease, um, and uh, it has uh, been a challenge to, to get cancer under control with vaccines. Uh, but we are working on it, um, and, and hopefully uh, at some point uh, we'll have a breakthrough in this area as well. How long are we talking? How many years might it take? And I know that's a difficult one, sort of finger in the wind, but what are we talking yeah, in terms of I time? Think, uh, I think it will still take a couple of years. Uh, I mean, those trials are all in earlier stages. Uh, so typically, uh, I, I would say in three to five years, we should know more. Okay, we will look forward to uh, to that time. There are clearly expectations around your pharmaceutical pipeline this year as well. And I, I just want to hone in on one that most definitely caught my attention and what the 40 million sufferers of Alzheimer's around the world too. You received breakthrough therapy designation in the FDA in the fourth quarter of this year, which caught my attention. Just give me a sense of where are you, if you can, with, with the trials and the developments with this and, and potential timing, because I've seen some skeptics. I've also seen some optimism. Right. Uh, our lead medicine in, in the Alzheimer space is, is a, a drug called uh, Gantenerumab. And we expect the readouts of the pivotal, the large late stage trials towards the end of this year. Um, so uh, by that time, we will, need, we will know whether uh, we hopefully um, have a new medicine to help fighting this devastating uh, medicine, uh, the disease, but for the time uh, being, we, we still need a bit of patience. <laughs> I'm rubbish with patience, but we'll hang on in there. Um, what do <laughs> investors need to know for Roche for the, for the coming year? 
What would you like them to, to understand at this moment, particularly on a day where perhaps there is a bit of disappointment? Uh, I'm most excited about our emerging pipeline. Uh, I cannot remember a time when Roche had more late-stage clinical trials reading out uh, than this year. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, across the board, uh, we have important readouts uh, with new cancer medicines, um, also uh, important readouts in, in neurology. Uh, literally every month we will have an important readout. So this year is really special uh, in terms of, of clinical readouts. So, uh, uh, we are very excited about that and, and that uh, really provides us with the optionality uh, to make a huge impact for patients first and foremost, but of course also drive the growth uh, of our business for the years to come. Now, Roche's CEO is also the vice chairman of the Credit Suisse Board of Directors, the bank currently grappling with a string of scandals, including the resignation of its chairman over COVID breaches. I asked Schwann about how he simultaneously manages high-profile roles at two of Switzerland's biggest companies. Actually, I was quite uh, busy uh, over the holidays, that is true. Um, but uh, uh, I'd say in, in principle, uh, it was uh, very compatible with my role uh, at, at uh, Roche. And uh, it's also clear um, that uh, my role at Roche uh, is, is the priority and uh, I wouldn't make any compromises uh, in fulfilling this task. You can manage it all is the message. Now, yeah, uh, uh, you know, sometimes there are very special circumstances uh, and then you have to step in. Um, uh, but I'm confident uh, that uh, we are now in more stable waters. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and a reminder that President Biden is due to speak any moment now following news that the leader of ISIS was killed in a U.S. military operation in northern Syria last night. We will take you to that speech the moment it begins. For now, U.S. stocks up and running this Thursday. And as expected, we do have a weaker open across the board. As you can see, we've got a sea of red. The Nasdaq down after rotten results from Facebook parent company Meta. Meta feeling like a fallen fang, I think, at this moment. Shares down more than, wow, almost 25% in early trade after reporting disappointing profits. Users trotting off to TikTok and spending on Meta is soaring other Fang stocks falling in symphony. Many of those firms, including Netflix and Amazon, are facing rising costs too. Amazon is expected to report weaker Q4 results later today as supply chain and labour pressures mount. Now, the European Central Bank keeping key interest rates unchanged despite record inflation in the eurozone. But the Bank of England raising rates for the second meeting in a row. It's the BOE's first consecutive one-two punch in 18 years. While at the same time, the UK revealing a $12 billion package to offset soaring energy bills. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, great to have you with us. Let's talk about the UK first. All policymakers taking action here to tackle rising prices. The central bank raising interest rates, but the government too, very importantly, trying to help households deal with the uh, soaring costs of energy prices. 
Yeah, it's all about inflation today and the cost of living. And as you say, they're very much marching in lockstep here. You've got the Bank of England and the government uh, making big announcements on the same day. Now, no surprises in terms of the actual rate rise there, raising it now to half a percentage point, given that inflation was 5.4% in December. What was perhaps surprising was that there was actually quite a conflict, I think, at the MPC, uh, 5 4 uh, came the decision. And actually, that minority wanted a bigger rate rise. So it feels a little bit hawkish. They're winding down their QE program as expected. That was all signposted. So really no surprises there. Of all the numbers I scribbled down from the Bank of England meeting, here are two that really surprised slash shocked me. Right. Households will see their post-tax disposable income slump by 2% this year. Ouch. Uh, and also the bank has revised up their inflation forecasts I think it'll be close to 6% this month and next. And wait for it, 7.25% in April. So double ouch. As you say, a huge part of that is energy costs, of course. And in the UK, actually, consumers have largely been insulated from wholesale uh, prices skyrocketing uh, due to a cap um, by the energy regulator. Now, that cap is being raised significantly in March. We're told today that will cost the average household an additional $940 a year. So... Enter the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, to the rescue with a plan for a rebate to try and uh, kind of split that cost uh, over five years for many households. Also looking at tax discounts and funds for lower income households as well. There is absolutely no doubt this year will be a struggle for many households, many businesses. And the Bank of England ultimately said they're looking at cooling uh, economic growth. And they're also saying that unemployment could rise from four to five percent. Julia? Wow, Anna, give me that second stat again. $940, the rise in additional, the average. Additional, additional. Yeah. Wow, I mean, that's, um, that's a shocking rise for, for many households. Um, wow, okay, well, it's good that they're taking action to do something. What about the European Central Bank? Different tone there, different challenges. Yeah, no rate rise there. Kel surprise. Um, no one expected this to happen. Christine Lagarde, the president, has made very clear they are not going to rush. Not least if you consider that the ECB had worked so hard pre-pandemic to try and get inflation to 2%. Now, what they're saying today, again, is that inflation is being largely driven by energy and food price increases. They believe that will stabilise. They see inflation medium term getting much closer to their target. So no moves here. Uh, they're just standing ready, we're told, with all the tools at hands to respond when they need to. And I do think we have to remember that for the ECB, they're looking at 19 nations and the inflation divergence across them. I mean, yes, overall, inflation is at 5.1% in January, but overall, there's actually quite a big divergence between some of those economies. Yeah, and that's the critical point. When you're setting policy for 19 different nations, <laughs> different degrees of COVID, restrictions, impact on growth, as Lagarde has said, you've got to be very careful not to... Um, not to take action that ends up worsening the economic outlook, despite trying to tackle inflation. Anna, great job. Thank you. We'll first move after the break. Welcome back. Russia has called on the US to stop stirring up tension in Europe. That's after the Biden administration's decision to deploy 3,000 troops to the region. A symbol of U.S. and NATO resolve is already in the Adriatic. The admiral leading the USS Harry S. Truman aircraft carrier won't say what will happen when drills end on Friday. But its presence in the region is sending a clear message, as CNN's Fred Plyken reports. The U.S. and its allies in a united show of force facing aggression from Russia. 
the USS Harry S. Truman is in Europe refining cooperation with NATO allies to make sure the alliance can operate more coherently, says Naval Flight Officer Jeanette Lazaro. We just go out there, integrate to different NATO partners, anybody we are working with, and we work to kind of smooth the communication processes. As Russia continues to amass troops near the border with Ukraine, the U.S. says it will help further strengthen the NATO alliance. This is the first time since the Cold War that a full carrier strike group has been placed under NATO command, with ships from various NATO countries flanking the Truman. The U.S. kept the Harriers Truman in Europe longer than planned as the standoff with Russia intensifies to reassure America's allies that the U.S. is fully committed to collective defense. Russia has pulled together more than 100,000 troops near Ukraine, the U.S. believes, and Moscow could order an attack at any time. While President Biden has said he would not send U.S. forces to Ukraine, the Harry S. Truman can effectively fortify NATO's eastern flank. Despite Russia's massive naval presence in the Black Sea, the carrier's F-18 jets can quickly reach the area close to Ukraine. The Truman's commander says years of integration with allies are now paying off. We're committed to our alliances, our partnerships. Uh, we're able to, to operate plug and play anywhere in the world. And uh, from an adversary point of view, it, it, we're agnostic. If we have the strong partnership, then that's stronger than any individual adversary could ever be. The U.S. says Russia would pay a high price for any further invasion of Ukraine. And the Pentagon has just announced it will deploy additional U.S. troops to Germany, Poland, and to Romania. The current situation demands that we reinforce the deterrent and defensive posture on NATO's eastern flank. President Biden has been clear that the United States will respond to the growing threat to Europe's security and stability. But the U.S. and its allies say they hope diplomacy will prevail as one of America's strongest deterrent forces remains on guard. Fred Plitkin, CNN, aboard the USS Harry S. Truman in the Adriatic Sea. Now, given the tensions between Russia, Ukraine and the United States, just spare a thought for the Ukrainian Olympic team who are focused on performing. Selena Wang sat down with a bobsledder trying to simply shut out the noise. The Olympic Games are meant to unify, build bridges between groups in conflict. But as tensions between Ukraine and Russia mount, not all Olympic athletes can embrace that message. Ukraine's sports minister said its athletes should stay away from their Russian rivals at the Winter Olympics and that Ukrainian athletes have been briefed on how to behave in case of provocations. Lydia Gunko, Ukraine's first bobsledder at the Winter Olympics, is prepared to follow that guidance. No, <laughs> my... We are clearly not friends with the Russian athletes. We have to train and perform with them. But because their country wants to violate our integrity, we cannot have easy contact with them. Satellite photos and intelligence reports show Russia has amassed about 120,000 troops near the border of Ukraine. You try to distance yourself from all of this during competitions and training. Of course, in real life, you can't isolate yourself because many friends and acquaintances have suffered from Russia's actions. Gungo has family in Ukraine and Russia. Are your relatives on both sides? Are they going to be watching and cheering you on? Of course. We are one family and we must support each other. 
great many Russians have have relatives in Ukraine and and being you know forced to draw apart in this way and you know engage in frankly you know rather stupid symbolic behavior. But embracing a Russian rival has already gotten a Ukrainian athlete in trouble. At the Tokyo Summer Olympics last year, a Ukrainian high jumper, a bronze medalist and junior army sergeant, was photographed with the Russian gold medalist. Ukraine's deputy defense minister called the embrace careless behavior and even suggested it was a way for Russian intelligence to infiltrate the Ukrainian military. Gunko has been training and self-isolating as much as possible ahead of the games, held under the strictest COVID countermeasures in the world. Even her bobsled had to get COVID tested when it arrived in China. We have to agree to their terms, but it's a bit crazy. But Gunko says it's all worth it. It is an honor for me. This is extremely important for our country and for the development of this sport in Ukraine. As Gunko makes her way into Beijing, she plans to block out all of the distractions, something she says she applies to bobsledding and life. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. Good strategy. And in the meantime, Beijing relying on plenty of positive spin on social media. To help with that, it's recruiting so-called influencers from inside and outside of China. As David Culver reports. It is the side of the Beijing Winter Games that China wants you to see, as told by a Russian YouTuber. He's just one of many foreign influencers granted access to China's Olympic venues ahead of the Games and posting videos that shower praise on the host country. As the Olympics kick off, get ready to see a surge in China-related posts on your social media feeds. CNN found some of it is even expected to come from inside the U.S., paid for by China. What we are doing is we're acting in the advisory capacity of promoting awareness, engagement, a bit of excitement and support for the Olympics and Team USA. In a U.S. Department of Justice filing from December, Vip Jaswell's New York-based company disclosed that it plans to develop a marketing initiative to create awareness of the Olympic and Paralympics event. The listed client? China's consulate general in New York. The Chinese government paying $300,000 to target audiences outside of China. And that's just to Jaswell's company. He'll use platforms like Instagram, Twitch, and TikTok, all of which are blocked inside China. They don't need to audition for anyone's approval. They just need to present their side of the story that is not heard through politicians or the press. Jaswal says the roughly nine or so influencers he's recruiting will not focus on politics, but rather the Olympic spirit. They'll join the steady stream of posts made by foreigners telling the so-called real China story. But on these profiles, you'll struggle to find any criticisms of China's human rights record. Instead, it's the positive spin. A lot of these Western influencers will come to iconic spots like this one, the Forbidden City, which is beautiful, and they'll show the best of China. That work, in turn, gets promoted by state media. Take that Russian YouTuber, for example. He tells CNN he was invited to see the venues and is not being paid by China nor told what to say. But state-run China Radio International picked up his story. Then dozens of other state media outlets began reposting the article, amplifying his praise of China. It's part of China's wider strategy to promote positive foreign voices. 
In fact, a report in China's official Guangming Daily suggested foreign influencers who are friendly to China be used to help bolster the official narrative. It also characterized foreign athletes and their coaches as a rich mind to tap into. That same strategy extended into controversial topics like Xinjiang. It's where the U.S. alleges China is committing genocide against its Uyghur Muslim minorities, claims that China strongly denies. But scroll through the post of these foreign influencers. There's no proof of genocide. And you'll see they echo the official narrative, painting a rosy picture and denying any wrongdoings. It's totally normal here. Those videos, then shared widely by Chinese state media and embassies around the world. Promoting China abroad is not without risk. Jaswa says he's faced personal attacks and death threats for doing business with China. I'm an American citizen. I'm a patriot. Um, My mindset going in was I was promoting an event that belongs to the world. But the world is fractured. And even during a global sporting event that's supposed to unify, China's social media blitz may do little to sway minds. We did reach out for comment to several of the influencers. Those who got back to us maintain they are not paid by China, which in some cases may be true, but they at times see the benefit of their work being amplified to a population of more than 1.4 billion people. David Culver, CNN, Beijing. Stay with First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. All this week, we're exploring the ways people, communities, businesses and industries in Japan are innovating and preparing for a world beyond the pandemic. Today, CNN's Blake Essek looks at how technology is being harnessed to help agriculture. Considered such a delicacy, they're often sold at auction. From a crate of mandarin oranges selling for $9,600 to a bunch of ruby Roman grapes for 11,000. You may have heard of Japan's high quality and rather pricey fruits and vegetables. Or the coveted domestically and internationally, there's a problem. There's simply not enough people to grow and harvest them. Take Nozomi Fukuyama, for example. Following in his parents' footsteps, he's been growing bell peppers here in the town of Shintomi Miyazaki Prefecture for 25 years. Throughout the years, Help around the farm has increasingly become harder to come by. We want to hire more people. In my case, most of the workers have quit because they have started their own businesses or because they're old. So he helped the Japanese robotics firm Agris develop a harvesting robot. This guy. It uses a camera to automatically recognize the peppers, and using its arms, it snips off the peppers at its stems as it moves along a suspended wire, allowing it to get around obstacles more easily. As it collects more and more data, artificial intelligence will be able to analyze growth rates and detect potential disease. While still in testing and development stages, Agris hopes to rent it to farmers one day. This robot might only harvest a small amount, but it gives the farmers more time to do other things and increase their yields and profits. Yoshihiko Takahashi co-founded Agorist in 2019. He was in charge of its day-to-day and overall operations until the end of December 2021 when he left the company. Rather than target older farmers, Takahashi says Agorist hopes to work with farmers in their 30s and 40s. When young farmers want to make their farming sustainable or expand the scale of their farming in order to protect their local agriculture, they will inevitably need more manpower. 
Due to the coronavirus, the inability to supply foreign workers has become a major problem. Farmers, especially small-scale ones, are decreasing. Consumption is also declining. A big concern now is whether it'll return to normal. Beyond the next harvest, Agrist has big plans in the making. What it calls highly reproducible agriculture. Our next goal is to create data-driven agriculture. To achieve this, we would like to develop not just this harvesting robot, but also artificial intelligence and entire facilities such as greenhouses. All in all, we want to innovate in agriculture and contribute to the future of humanity. Innovation in the agricultural space, giving businesses like Fukuyama's a fighting chance. I don't know if the solutions are through automation or technology, but I believe that the future of agriculture is bright in Japan. And the final scan of what we're seeing in terms of market price action, the Wall Street majors still weaker, as you can see in front of you there, though we have bounced slightly off session lows. The tech sector by far the worst performers. You can see down some 2.3 percent following those poor results from Facebook parent company Meta. That said, actually, every sector in the S&P 500, I'm just taking a look now, is trading lower at this moment. Meta currently losing a quarter of its value. Look at that, down 25%. Today's drop represents the firm's worst one-day performance on record. More than $200 billion in market cap wiped out so far. And actually other social media platforms are now falling in sympathy too, including Snap. As you can see, they are reporting results later today. And in anticipation of that, look at that, down almost 20% there too. Ouch, some real nervousness continuing there in and across the tech sector. For now, as I've been mentioning all throughout the show, President Biden is set to speak imminently from the White House. This follows the US announcing it has killed the leader of ISIS during a military operation overnight in Syria. CNN will bring you that speech live the moment it happens. So stay tuned for that. And for now, that's it from me and the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe as always. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.